For a moment, I was afraid that only adults were leaving. <laughs> Worshippers at Friday Church leave this place, and they go to our fellowship hall and participate in a 12-step program. And it really gave me pause to read this passage of scripture to that particular group. I had no wish to put any more obstacles in front of them as they seek healing. But it occurs to me that I don't know you well enough to know who may also be struggling with that this morning, much less Friday nights. And so I have to say it's not my wish to put obstacles in front of you either. Yet the more I study this passage, the more I'm convinced it's not really about wine or winemaking. But it is about justice. Ronnie Gilbert works here, lives here with us. If you know Ronnie, you love Ronnie. And if you don't love Ronnie, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> He's one of our wedding coordinators. And I enjoy working with him. I enjoy working with all of them. Ronnie has a way of bringing the whole wedding party here to the front of the church as we begin the rehearsal. He tells them where the rooms are that the women will be using for dressing, that the men will be using. Tells them about the no-smoking policy. Tells them that his role is to get people down the aisle in order, and then it's all up to me to get them married and get them back up the aisle. And then he says, tomorrow something may go wrong. He said, if it does, remember, at the end of the day, these two people will be married, and that's what matters. Hang on to that, please, at the end of the day. I want to talk about this passage this morning, about what would be readily apparent to John's readers, but not readily apparent to us. And then I want to talk about what my own takeaways are from this passage. I read a lot, as do many of you. I start at the beginning, and I go to the end, as do you. I don't read a couple of paragraphs here and skip 40 pages and read a couple of paragraphs there and skip over to the last chapter and read a paragraph there. So sometimes I wonder, why do we read the Bible that way? How could I skip around in a book and think I know the author's intent and the full meaning of what's written? And so I want to suggest to us this morning, we really need to know what comes before and what comes after this passage. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Important to know is that their wedding celebrations are far different from ours. You go to a wedding, go to the, rehearse, or go to the dinner afterwards, You typically get impatient waiting for the bride and groom the wedding party to get there because they're taking pictures and you're wondering, when can we eat? And you think it's a long time, typically maybe half a day. Theirs were different. They were typically up to a week or more in length. It would start with a torchlight procession of the groom and his friends, usually coming at night to the bride's house. It's a very impressive display. They'd get there, and there'd be speeches and well wishes, expressions of goodwill, and then the torchlight procession would go back to the groom's house, but this time they'd have the bride with them. And there, 
the wedding festivities would begin. There'd probably be a religious ceremony along the way, coupled with this week of eating and drinking. Running out of food or wine was a social embarrassment, and that doesn't begin to explain what it was. Our culture lives with a dichotomy of guilt and innocence. Theirs live with a dichotomy of shame and honor. You no doubt have heard in the news that some places in the Middle East still practice honor killings. Running out of wine was a shameful thing to them. Running out of wine was an omen that the joy in the marriage would run out. Guests would be offended that the feast foretold a miserable marriage. A father-in-law might very well take you to court. My mind reels with the thought of testifying in court about how you knew that the wine had run out. Well, Your Honor, on the sixth day, I was getting sober. It's not a good joke. It's just something... And so it is, Mary tells Jesus that we have a problem. And his response to her is cryptic and it sounds kind of rude to us, but basically he says to her, What do you mean, we? It's not my problem. I don't have to fix this. But he does. There were six stone water jars there. Each of those would hold 20 or 30 gallons, about 200 pounds per stone jar, not counting the weight of the jar itself. For my cataract surgery, the doctor said, don't lift anything over heavier than a gallon of milk. 2% milk notwithstanding, don't lift it. You imagine the weight of one jar. My point is that they were very likely stationary, and filling them would involve several trips to the source of water. Go get a gallon, bring it back, and dump it. Go get a gallon, bring it back, and dump it. A lot of work for the servants. The water was not for drinking. The water was for ceremonial washing. And the Old Testament required several kinds of ceremonial washing. And a devoutly Jewish wedding required many more ceremonial cleansing, and so they needed all this water. But the water was for cleansing, not for drinking. Growing up, my parents would send my two brothers and I every year for a week at the farm, my aunt and uncle's farm near Falmouth, Kentucky, the place where they had no running water. They would say that the work would be good for us. I think it was for my mother's mental health. We'd spend our days helping with chores, playing in the woods, playing in the barn, and for reasons indecipherable to a little boy, they would think we needed a bath. No running water. A bath consisted of a metal tub on the floor in the kitchen, filled with water, heated from the stove, and allowed to become tepid. And you'd set your little bottom down in there and tuck your knees under your chin and bathe. And when you got out this scummy water, which had evidence of your day's activities, would then be thrown out. More water be put in it for the next victim of this humiliation. 
I don't recall him ever scrubbing that wash tub. You just threw the water out. Nobody ever thought we'd drink from that tub. The stone jars were for, for purification, for washing. They were not for drinking. They would have been considered unclean. And you see, this for me is where the story gets funny. And I know that when you have to explain a joke, it's not funny anymore. Jesus tells the servants to take a cup of this water and take it to the chief steward. Pretend it's wine. He hasn't spoken over it. He hasn't stuck his finger in it. hasn't waved his hands over it. He tells them to do all of this. They're in a pickle. Would you want to do that? Take this unclean water to the head guy? But they did, and they certainly must have stood there trying to keep the fear off their faces. But the steward tasted it and pronounced it the best. And then there are two servants there trying not to laugh. That kind of thing where you know you you can't look at your partner because the moment your eyes meet, your laughter is going to demand release. I used to work with this delightful social worker named Emily, and she found me funny for some reason. And if something happened in a home where someone was actually dying, something might be said that was just crazy, we learned very quickly, I must not look at Emily. And she would repeat the mantra, I must not look at Jim. We would wait till the team meeting later or sometime away from the house before we could laugh about what was said or done. These servants are caught there. They must not look at each other. Now, my takeaways from this. John's Gospel is a theology book with stories. He preaches theology in that first chapter, the Word, capital W, becomes flesh and dwells among us. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. And I know when when a preacher starts talking like that, your eyes start glazing over it and your hand gets itchy trying to find your cell phone for some relief from this. But then in this chapter, he begins to talk in a very practical way what this means for the word to become flesh, for the one of God to truly be among us. And so he tells this story about a wedding reception that turns dark and shameful. There's a kind of chaos in this, and Jesus calls forth this order and a certain richness, flavorfulness, something better than what they'd been consuming. And in the process, he makes the point that this wine shortage is not his problem. He doesn't have to fix it, but he does. God doesn't have to fix us. God chooses to act in ways that save us. God doesn't have to fix me. But God chooses that God doesn't want me to live in shame, doesn't want you to live in shame, but wants the best for us, joy for us. And the story continues beyond the discovery of good wine. John takes a story that the other gospel writers save to the end of their presentation about Jesus. 
making it the cause for his crucifixion. But here, John puts it at the very beginning. So right after the winemaking, Jesus goes to the temple and cleanses the temple, turning over tables, kicking out the money changers, driving out the animals. You would have thought the temple would be the place of holiness, a place clean. It's become a place of corruption and greed. A place that took people who were already on the fringe and kept them there. A place where the poor were disregarded and women were disrespected. A place where foreigners could be overcharged and people further shamed. These are not meant to be anti-Semitic comments about Judaism, but an acknowledgement that the various religions of our world, including our own, have corrupted themselves at various times and places in history, burning at the stake those who didn't get their theology right or who were assumed to be witches, or pronouncing a theology of white superiority that blessed lynchings and beatings and fire hoses and lousy education opportunities. And even today, many compromise the values of the faith in pursuit of political power. And it is our history that whenever we start pursuing political power, we start corrupting our own selves. And it's just as wrong for Christians in our day as it was for the Jewish leadership in their day. So you have Jesus here bringing the new and the flavorful out of that which would be considered contaminated and yet going into the place that's considered clean and now he's cleaning house. It's like you can clean your hands but it doesn't matter if your heart is full of abuse. If you use the hands to shame and to hurt and to steal, cleanliness is no good. It's like heavy stone jars. That cannot easily be moved. Your whole system of cleansing is too heavy. That it's laughable. Where's the joy? Where's the celebration of love? Where's the delight in a relationship where love grows deeper over time? Where's the joy over an ever greater understanding of one another? His actions say that there is no room for exploitation. As I read the words of Martin Luther King, we have today, I think he pronounced those words again to our generation. These words carry the intent of bringing the wine out of contamination, of reminding us that what we consider dirty, God said, oh, let me have the good people. Martin Luther King said, I have seen too much of hate every time I see it. I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. There are servants in this story who courageously did what Jesus asked, even though it didn't make any sense to them. They must have thought, this is crazy taking this water and handing it to the chief steward. They must have clinched, anticipating a tongue lashing or worse. 
But I ask myself, what is it that I fear when Jesus asked me to live gently in this world? When he asked me to practice love and mercy for all? When he asked me to live with concern and behavior of justice for all? What is it I fear? I don't know if my cup can hold all that. But when I hold my cup, such as it is, I have to trust that God makes more of it and more of me. More than I expect. And then I remember Ronnie's words. At the end of the day, there'll be this new relationship A relationship between us and God and between one another. Amen.